we reach episode 30. Rather surprisingly, I wanted to say something about what I've regarded for a great many years, certainly all the years I've been in education, and when I've had to administer it of, of a kind of requirement of the system, what I regard as the fairly absurd human obsession with ranking, with, in other words, deciding who's the best, who's the second best, all the way down to who's the worst. Most schools operate a system where pupils are ranked in exams relative to one another. And it doesn't take much thought to see that this is, at the very best, arbitrary. If you consider a pupil who does exams in just three subjects, and many do them in many more, let's say English, maths and science, they will obviously all get different marks. And so there is a problem right at the start in any attempt to decide who is the best, even supposing such a question is worth asking, which I'll come back to if I don't forget. So what do we do? We adopt some arbitrary rule. We add the marks up or we might give weights to the marks by doubling the maths mark to treat it as more significant. Or we might do any number of mathematical, arithmetical things to produce a single mark on the basis of which any number of students can be ranked. And we then talk about the best. But three marks on three different subjects will obviously suggest that inasmuch as those marks accurately reflect the quality and the relative quality of the pupils, and that itself is also questionable, there will be pupils who will come top in the marks in English and others who will come top in maths and, un and others in science. Occasionally a very bright pupil will come top in all three, but in my experience it's unusual. And certainly if you multiply the number of marks or subjects uh, by the sense of adding history and geography and French and German and Russian and art and all the other things that you could add, you might end up with eight, nine, ten marks, and then the chance of a single pupil coming top in all ten of them is vanishingly small. Now, sometimes this uh, artificial creation of a final order is forced upon us by other decisions, such as, for example, who will get a scholarship to a university or a school and so the ranking serves some purpose there, if that's the way you decide to allocate the resources. But why do you and why should you? If you think about the obsession with the same thing that we have in sport, sport, going back to yesterday's episode, uses winning the European Champions League 
as a future objective by means of which to galvanize the efforts of a, of a team and every team, but only one wins the prize. And so there is an argument, which I acknowledge, that the thought that at the end of the day you will be ranked might serve to encourage people to greater effort. But the problem with it is that unless that is an intrinsically valuable thing to do, it introduces massive areas of artificiality into our educational system. It may be inescapable in sport, but I suspect that the whole thing is based upon an arbitrary way of making sense of the world that may not be optimal for anyone. So when we start thinking about how this ranking system affects our world, we quickly see that all sorts of measures, the amount of money you've got, the number of parliamentary seats that you win, and all sorts of other things, confer great influence or power on you. We even introduce it into social systems by having such things as hierarchies of social status with monarchs or heads of state at one end and the homeless, I suppose, unfortunately, tragically and unjustly at the other. And what is that all about? but trying to organize the world and make sense of the world on the basis of an arbitrary measuring system. Now, when you've done that, in other words, when you've decided to rank, you've still even though the result is arbitrary, based your decision on the assumption that ranking people is the right thing to do in the first place, which I said I would return to. Obviously, there are very strong, what you might call anthropological or sociological and perhaps economic reasons why we will be making some kinds of decisions about allocations of resources based upon, well, it could be, as it was in primitive times, force, um, the willingness and readiness and ability of your tribe to grab other people's stuff. Um, Inevitably, because people live in different circumstances and the land that they live in and the resources that land can provide are different, there will be differentials in what people's working and living conditions are determined by things that are just just reflections of their happenstance of their place of birth and their time of birth. And there will, I guess, always be some sort of attempt to level up or level down or improve your lot by uh, grabbing the land or the resources or the wealth that other people have 
generated either by dint of hard work or by dint of chance. So yes, there may well be anthropological, sociological and economic and even political reasons why we would be interested in determining who had the most capacity to grab the most resources. But even as soon as you've said that, you then get to the question immediately, why should one person seize more resources than their fair share, whatever that might mean? And here I've got a little story, which you might have heard before, but I don't think I've done it in these voice notes, which I first heard on a school trip to HMS Victory in Portsmouth Harbour, where, and this may just be an apocryphal story made up to please the tourists, but in any case, the, the point holds. They say that the first thing a new recruit to the Navy was required to do was to make his own hammock. And he was given exactly, I think, 18 inches of a spacer uh, to build his hammock on which the strings would be threaded. And if his spacer was even fractionally too long, he was charged with a crime called stealing another man's space and flogged. Well, stealing another man's space is an interesting generic term for what most of us seem to us, seem to me to do most of the time. And a system that acquiesces in and even encourages some of us to grab more of the resources of the world than others, what we like to say is a, an attribute of human nature, where we say human nature naturally produces greed, which I'm not sure we should acquiesce in at all. But that will give rise to some sort of incentive to decide who should have most by determining who is best, which will be done on some arbitrary measure or other. And that arbitrary measure can be done on the basis of marks and exams or measures of wealth or measures of strength or whether you can win football matches or win wars. So somewhere along the line, we have fallen into the habit of assuming that allocation of resources should be done on the basis of competition rather than on the basis of need or merit. A merit here wouldn't be decided by individual desire. But, for example, you might allocate someone who was better able to do farming, say, more farmland because they would produce proportionately more food than someone who wasn't good at farming. And so one might go on. Uh, but I won't. But I'm simply making the point, and it's rather early in the morning, so I'm not entirely awake that all of our measurement systems, our ranking systems, our determination to treat people as though one is better than another may have understandable 
sociological, anthropological, economic roots, but I'm not sure that we should acquiesce in them in the way we make sense of the world.